But this morning, I'm excited again, and I, I've said this the last few weeks, but I'll say it again. I'm, I'm loving this current series of talks we're doing, and I'm excited to talk about yet another phrase with you this morning. Um, for those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time in the middle of this, uh, we're going through a series right now called God Didn't Say That. And uh, this is a way for us to evaluate and look at phrases that we commonly hear whether that be in the church or outside of the church, but that are most often associated with Christianity or people who claim to know Jesus. And you, you may have even heard people who claim the name of Christ share these things, and they're just not in the Bible. And so we're debunking all these myths and coming to a grasp of what did God actually say. All right, That's been the focus of this, and we're going to be in this another couple weeks still. And uh, we could probably extend that even further, coming up with further phrases that we often hear. And so my challenge to you, as it has been consistently, even outside of this series, is always come back to a center on what does Scripture say? What does the Word of God say about what I'm hearing, about the things I'm reading, all right? Um, I would challenge you, even here and now, don't just take someone else's perspective and believe it as truth. Right? This is very important. And I, I extend that even to myself. And I've said this before, but I expect you as a church to keep me accountable to what Scripture says as well. This is to be a mutual growth where we're saying we desire to elevate the Word of God above anything else, above anybody else, above any other voice. That is our focus. Okay? And so... That, if you ever question that and go, I'm not sure if that's in the Bible, you come talk to me and, and we'll have a conversation about that, alright? That's, that's of utmost importance to me as we dive through this series and beyond that uh, in coming to grips with these. Um, I'm going to open this up with a question and I want you to just kind of respond as things come to mind. Now, base this on what we just said, that this needs to be rooted in Scripture, Okay. But what are some specific action steps that God calls us to in Scripture? And when I say specific action steps, what I mean is things God says, you need to do this. Alright? What are some examples of action steps that God has called us to in Scripture? Yell them out. Pray. I heard one over here said pray. Praise, repentance. What was that one? Okay. Spread the gospel. That's a big one. What else? Serve. Love your neighbor. Trust. Study the scriptures. Okay. Meditate on his word day and night. Forgiveness. What else? Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Alright? Good. Be holy as I am holy. That's a challenging one, isn't it? Okay? And we could, we could sit here and go on and on and on quite a bit with some of these, okay? I just want to get you thinking in that way. And I'm going to put up some of them that I wrote down uh, as I was prepping this week. You go ahead and stick those up there. This is, this is a list. There's two pages of this. First one, make disciples. Okay? Matthew 28 says that. Give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9 communicates that to us. Alright? Pray continually. Walk in obedience. 
And then another page of them. Okay? Rejoice in the Lord. Worship the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And not just love your neighbor, but love your enemies. Right? Now, I'm getting us started with this thought, but here's a question that relates to our phrase for the day. As we think about what God has called us to when we read Scripture, do any of these things change who God is or what He has promised? And what I mean by that is, is our doing of any of these things change who God is or what He has already promised? Alright, everyone, I'm going to ask that question one more time, and everyone's going to respond, no. Just so we're on the same page, okay? Do any of these things change who God is or what He has promised? Okay. This is really important. Because the minute that we start assuming that what I do or don't do shapes who God is, all of a sudden God is now made in our image or put in our box rather than us being rooted into who He is and has promised to be. And where this comes into our statement for today, and we're going we're gonna to do this as we usually do. I'm going to read this statement and you're going to respond. Okay? Our statement for today... God helps those who help themselves. I'm going to say it one more time, okay? And we're going to say it with boldness, okay? God helps those who help themselves. Okay. Now, you'd be surprised to know, some, some statistics say almost 80% of people think that this is a Christian phrase. And even up to close to 20% of Christians believe this is something that's in the Bible. Okay? Now, I'm just curious, and I've been asking this question all week. So if I've asked you this question and given you the answer, you're not allowed to answer. Do any of you know where this statement is actually from? Anyone have any ideas? Okay. All right. Go back even further. We're tracing this back to its root. Anyone know? Okay, that's where a lot of people think it's from Poor Richard's Almanac. Alright, from 1757. That's where most people quote it from. Okay? But the root of it actually goes even further back. It goes even beyond that. It goes clear back to one of Aesop's fables called Hercules and the Wagoneer. Where the phrase was... The gods, plural, will help them who help themselves. And so we start tracing this back and we go, well, wait, wait a minute. That's probably not something I should be using. But at the root, at the core of this, what we're going to recognize in our passage of Scripture today is that the gospel, everyone say gospel, is the very opposite of this statement. Not that God helps those who help themselves, but rather Jesus died in recognition that we can't help ourselves. Big difference. 
profound difference when it comes to application for us right here and right now. So open your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and this is where we're going to sit for today. And we're going to, I'll pull from a couple other passages, but this is the root of where I want us to focus our attention. Romans chapter 5. And in this specific letter, the full letter of Romans is written to the church. Everyone say the church. Okay. And we've talked about this in the past. The church being the organization of the group of people, not limited to a location, but rather all those who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved. All right. And the motive from that to say that the church does not just exist on Sundays, but it exists every single day, wherever you who believe in the name of Jesus are, that's where the church is. And how much more motivation should that be to function in the same way, not just on Sunday, but daily living this out. So... Paul's writing this and is really challenging the theological, the foundational framework of what they're believing and rooting them into some of these principles. And I want you to hang with me. There's some, some terminology and phrasing in here that can get complicated. Don't get bogged down by that. We're going to read through it and I'm going to break it down um, so we can understand that clearer and better. But starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Whoa, that's quite a challenge. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Heavenly Father, as we uh, break this down further today, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to understand the depth of this, that the gospel would be apparent, Lord, that we would understand, no matter how long or short of a time that we've heard these truths, that they would take root, that they would impact, that they would challenge, that they would transform us to be more like your Son, more like Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. 
Now, I want to break this down, this, this section of Romans 5 down a little more specifically, just so you start to see aspects of this. And one of the things when we read through a letter like Romans is we see these big words like justification and reconciliation and salvation, and we tend to gloss over it, whether we recognize it or not. And yet, these simple terms have such depth, such meaning for us today, and the theological truths behind those have such an impact or have the potential to have such an impact on us that we would do, be doing ourselves a disservice to just jump past them without considering the depth of each one of those. And the first thing I bring to your attention is in verse 2 we see that through Him we have been given access by faith into His grace. Verse 2 says, through Him. Everyone say, through Him. Okay, now that is a, if you notice as we're reading through, that phrase, that phrasing was mentioned a lot. And that's really important because there's a huge aspect of this. God helps those who help themselves. is not in the Bible. Rather, we recognize that it is only through Him that these things take place. Alright? So, through Him, we have been given access by faith into His grace. Through Christ, we have been given access to God. Access to His grace. Ephesians 2 emphasizes that. where It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And let that sink in for a minute. And I love that text, and I come back to that text over and over and over again because it flies in the face of any of us who have this concept or this idea that somehow, some way, we play a part in bringing ourselves to right standing before God. And so the truth here. Starting this chapter off with this focus that it's through Christ that we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The question that we should be asking ourselves when we read that is, am I standing in the grace of God? Is that where my feet are planted? Because there's no middle ground. There's no in-between when we think about this. Either we have our feet firmly planted within the grace of God, or we have our feet firmly planted where I want to be. And let me tell you, God is a jealous God. And I'm a firm believer that we could be seeking to pursue God, but have our feet planted in the wrong place. Okay? We can know, we can know a lot about who God is. We could know a lot of Scripture and still have our feet planted in the wrong place. In fact, when I was in Oregon uh, pastoring there, um, I've, shared, I've shared about my friend there a couple times, I believe. And this guy has so much knowledge. So much knowledge. And he has a job where he... He flies overseas, he flies all around the world and sets up these major tech events. And so he, has, he goes to one event a month and makes a lot of money. And the rest of the month he doesn't work. 
And so he spends most of his free time just studying everything, anything and everything. And this is a guy who grew up in what he identified as a, as a Christian church. I don't know what the root of that was. Okay? He walked away from that, was an atheist for a season, then became a Mormon and actually an elder in the Mormon church, started questioning that and was excommunicated from the Mormon church. Okay? And then kind of was what he would identify as an agnostic, where it's like, well, I don't really know what to believe. Became a, a cult leader of, of sorts. And when I met him, he was starting to practice Judaism. Okay? And this guy learned, studied biblical Hebrew on his own, on his own time. Okay, this guy, he could quote scripture left and right. Still can't. And yet his feet are still firmly planted in going, well, I'm just, I have, I have a problem with some of this stuff. So you can know a lot of stuff. You can know a lot of things and not be rooted, not be standing in the midst of the grace of God. All right? And I'll compliment that and say, this guy also is a huge part of helping to establish and challenge and shape me in my defense of the gospel and the Bible. Because you want to challenge, you sit with someone who knows this stuff but doesn't believe it to be true, they've got some really good questions. Sit with some of those people. Dialogue, listen, and then go do the work and study. Evaluate, ask good questions back. It's a great way to grow. It's a great way to grow. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 5, we see that through him, everyone say through him, we've been given God's love through his spirit. says in verse 4, an endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the cool thing is we go back to when Jesus, after Jesus rose and he promised to the disciples, hey, I'm going to send I'm going to send a helper for you. My spirit is going to come. He's going to help you to understand these things, to grow in these things. You're going to receive power through the Holy Spirit to accomplish things that previously you never thought possible. And we see that take place. But then we're reminded even later on in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, where we're reminded that it's the same Spirit, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead that dwells in us through Christ. That changes things. Now, if we go back to our statement for today, God helps those who help themselves, it's up to you. You've got to figure out how to have God's Spirit come upon you. You've got to figure out how to do these things and accomplish these tasks and what God's calling you to. It's on you. And you better get to work because God's sitting up there waiting for you to do something before he acts. That's what that phrase says. Okay? And yet the gospel, the good news of scripture states that no, 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 no. When we are at our lowest... God says, 
I'm going to send my spirit as a helpmate to you because you can't do it by yourself. You can't accomplish this of your own power, of your own strength. And his love is shown through that. I'm going to read a section out of Titus chapter 3. And you can note this down or you can flip to it. Titus chapter 3. And I'm going to start in verse 4. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope Of eternal life. Think about that. Think about the awe in the midst of those phrases. And yet, church, we read things like this and we just go, eh. I've heard this stuff before. Church, this this truth, the richness of this should be what grasps us. And makes us go, oh my goodness, I have so much reason to rejoice, to be thankful, and to root even deeper into these truths. Because these kinds of promises, this kind of hope, I cannot find anywhere else. There's wonder in the midst of these words. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Powerful, powerful texts. Back to Romans 5 in verses 1 and 9, we see this one of these big words. And that's through Him we've been given justification. Everyone say justification. Now, to put it simply, justification is to show to be right. Or to declare to be righteous. And so when you think about the term justified... It first establishes the need that you have something to be justified from. And if we were to take a look at our lives, we were to back off and kind of have an overview, a blanketed view of who we are, where we are, what's going on, we're going to see that we have a lot of reasons that we need to be justified. Because I can identify a lot of areas in my life where I am separated from who God is. And we were even, I was even talking about this with a couple of guys this morning. When we root ourselves into work-based theology, being that I have to earn this, I have to work in order to be saved, the question becomes, what is the standard? How many times can you mess up before you are no longer in right standing? 
How much more good do I have to do than bad to tip the scales in my favor? And all of a sudden, when we root into something like that, we root into a principle like that, it makes our life really stressful. Because we're constantly wondering, am I good? Am I there? I know I told this white lie over here. Does that disqualify me? Or what about my past? What about everything that happened to me before Christ? Does that all go against my record? And the depth of what justification, this big word, means is that through Christ, I am declared righteous. But only through Christ. It's not Christ plus, okay? It's not a little bit of me and a little bit of Christ makes me righteous. It is all Him and none of me. And the idea that God is justified us through Christ means He has been gracious, means He has shown mercy to us, means that this is definitely something I do not deserve. And it's done as a gift of God's love to say, Here, I want you to have life. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you, at some point in your life, have been searching for peace? I just want to be at peace. Seriously. And most of us would be able to say, some of you right now are going, I just long for peace. Whether it be in my home, whether it be in my job, whatever it may be. And the cool thing about this text is that it's because you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And this is something that through Christ no one can take from you. You're going to face turmoil in life. There's going to be things that cause unrest. But this is a truth you can stand on. And say, no one, nothing can take this from me. In verse 9 it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And this brings up the next aspect of this is that through him we've been given salvation verse 10 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life notice there in the midst of all of this in verse 8 it sums this up by saying god shows his love Everyone say, His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that's very opposite of the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Rather, God has already helped those who cannot do anything for themselves. Even those who do not yet know that they cannot do anything for themselves. Lastly, in the midst of that, it's reconciliation. Which I love this term because it literally means to join that which has been separated. 
verse 10 and 11. We were reconciled to God by the death of his, uh, of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice. Everyone say rejoice. In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That is, a gap was made the first time that I stepped foot into this earth as a sinful human being. And through Christ, that gap has been filled and joined together. That which was previously separated. Now, we tend to have a problem with this stuff. And the reality of the issue begins with us. Begins with us. So you're going to turn to your neighbor and say, the problem starts with me. Okay? Okay? Just so we're all clear, I'm not going to have you turn and say the problem starts with them because that's not somewhere I want to go. But listen to this. This is a, this is a specific quote from, from Martin Luther, a well-known theologian. And he said this. He said, the problem with the unconverted man is this. Though he is dead and though he is blind and though he is deaf... He thinks of himself as someone who is alive, someone who can see, and someone who can hear. The deception is very genuine and deep-seated. And I hate to say it, but the reality is, this often becomes true for you and I. Even those of us who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, we have a tendency to walk in this way. To forget That it's of no power of ourselves that we are where we are in right standing before God. To forget that it's only through Christ that any of this is accomplished. And so we start doing our own thing. We start walking our own way. And we lose sight of the core, the foundation of the gospel and of God's grace. We lose sight of that. We stop reminding ourselves of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and we live with the mentality that God is going to help me because I am helping myself. Look at me, God. Look at what I'm doing. Surely you're going to help me. And we're guilty of this. Or maybe it's the other way. God, how could you let this happen? Look Look what I've been doing for you. I've been coming to church faithfully. I even, I even prayed with someone that I didn't know the other day. And this is how you pay me back. And we get frustrated with that as if God owes us something. That God owes me this idea of just everything being hunky-dory. And yet, the tables really need to be turned. I, I owe Him everything because I have no life apart from Him. And yet there's nothing I can do to repay. And so the reality of this is to walk in the truth of the gospel. There's three specific things that I need to daily seek to put away. Okay? Pride. Selfishness. And control. And maybe that's the challenge for you this week. You're here today and those three things are a booger for you. Okay? And you need to get rid of it. 
And I'm going to tell you, every one of those things threatens us every single day. Every decision we make, we have the opportunity or the option to respond in any one of these ways or multiple, or we have the opportunity to respond in the humility given to us through the grace of God. It's our choice. And there's really two ends of the spectrum here, church. When we hear this, when we hear the gospel, when we hear the message of scripture, we hear these truths. There's those who feel unworthy. And so they continue to work for their salvation. And then there's those who feel like they deserve this. And so it's fire insurance for them. Hey, I prayed a prayer. I'm saved. I can claim these truths and these promises. Time for me to have some fun. Check that one off my list. I'm good to go. Both of those are dangerous traps, church. There's not one in those that somehow becomes worse than the other because on one side you're saying, I'm still working for my salvation. And on the other side of it, you're going, I'm not doing anything that God's called me to do. I know what Scripture says, but I don't care. Both ends of the spectrum are so dangerous to you. Not simply from an earthly perspective, but from an eternal perspective. There's an illustration of a man who, uh, some of you may have heard this. The man who was on his roof as flood was taking place. And the flood waters are rising and rising and rising. And he's sitting there and he, um, a guy in a rowboat comes by. Says, hey, get on. Let's save you. Take you to shore. The guy sits there and says, no. God will save me. He keeps praying. Pretty soon a guy in a motorboat comes along. Hey. Come on, get in. This water's getting really high. No! God will save me. A helicopter comes. Hey, you're, you're on a little island here. Water's still rising. No! God's, God's going to save me. He's going he's gonna to bring me out of this. Of course, then he comes to, gets to heaven. And uh, now whether that's, that's, in my opinion, that's where this illustration falls apart. Just saying. <laughs> He's not happy when he gets to heaven. God, why didn't you, why didn't you save me? He's like, well, I'm kind of surprised you're here too because we sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter and you didn't take any of them. Okay? Now, again, that's an illustration and there's a lot of theological principles that we could question in the midst of that. But the emphasis, the reason I share that is because that tends to be how we operate when it comes to what God has commanded us, church. Is we take this, we so easily take this mentality of, ah, God's got this, he's, he's going to say, he's going to take care of this. And God's already told you how to take care of it. And we think that somehow by doing this my own way and doing this myself that I'm going to accomplish something. And yet my marriage is in shambles, my kids are completely off the rails and I'm miserable in my own life and people at my job dislike who I am and it's just spiraling and I'm going, man, God's God's gonna save me. He's got this. Well no. 
The gospel is not a call to laziness, church. Rather, it's a call to live in reflection of what God has already done for you. And how much more should we embody those commands and those principles and those truths when we see in Scripture that this is what God has done for me and it's of eternal value. How much more can I root into the things He's called me to do and to be right here, right now? And there is a lifetime of challenges for us to work through. You will never stop growing unless you decide to. And then you will sit right where you're at. And you will wonder why God never moved, why you never saw Him work in the ways you thought He was going to, or even how He promised. has nothing to do with God, has everything to do with us. And so there's two sides to this coin. Nothing you do will save you. It is only by the grace of God through Christ. But your choices and how you choose to live will drastically change how you see Him work in your life today. And if you choose to live for yourself and you choose to root into your own place, don't expect God's purposes to show up in the midst of that. Because God's going to remain faithful to His plan and His purposes. And He's going to use those circumstances you encounter. He's going to challenge you. He may sit you on the ground for a while and you're wondering what in the world is happening and he's saying, come back to me. Focus. Get back on track. Read the word. Understand what I've already called you to. And sometimes, church, I think we pray and we pray and we pray when the answer is right in front of us. And we question why God isn't giving us an answer. And it's because He already has. We just have to open up and look for it. God rewards faithfulness. God desires obedience. God longs for your devotion. But God's character is not changed by who you decide to be. So how do we apply these truths today? The first question I would encourage you to ask is, which end of the spectrum are you on? Are you the person who is convinced that you still need to work in order to be saved? Or are you the person who's just kind of wiped your hands and said, I did that, I checked that box, I'm just doing my own thing. Which end of the spectrum are you For those who believe they can do it themselves, listen to this, there is no promise of eternity with God. If you believe that it is of your own doing that you are saved, there is no hope of eternity. Because salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. For the one who does not trust Christ... 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us there's a guarantee of an eternity in hell. That's not something you hear talked about often. But it's true. And if we diminish the gospel to be something that's just flowery and loving and nothing but... We miss the side that God is a, a just God. 
He's a God of wrath. And he will rule a righteous verdict. That's a humbling reality that we have to think about, church. Second application. Rejoice. There were multiple times in Romans 5 that he says rejoice. Verse 2, rejoice in hope. Verse 3, rejoice in your sufferings. Verse 11, rejoice in God's gift to us through Christ. There is much to rejoice even in the midst of trial and pain and struggle. The gospel doesn't change. God doesn't change. And for that we can rejoice. And thirdly and finally in the midst of this, be a faithful conduit of God's help. And thinking back to that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, we've debunked that. The gospel is completely different than that. And in recognition of that for ourselves, we should be the conduit by which all of that flows out of us. Be generous. Be compassionate. Ask yourself, how can I be a conduit of God's love and grace that was given to me? How can I be a conduit of that to someone else specifically? Think of a name of someone and write that down and say, how can I do that this week? Practically, what does that look like? And if you really want to challenge yourself, pick someone who you really have a hard time with. Pick someone that you wouldn't just walk over and talk to because they kind of irk you the wrong way. And then be a conduit of the same grace, the same mercy, the same love that has been given to us. In Luke chapter 18, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up, but in um, Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable of these two guys who came to worship. They came to the house of God. And one of those guys was a Pharisee, a religious leader of the time. And he stands there and he prays. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like these poor peasants, people. And I'm summarizing here. Thank you. You know, I do all these things. I'm a righteous person. And then this tax collector comes and, and... Biblical history, the tax collector was not a liked person, which you, some of you would say, oh, well, that's true today too. And he's on his face. He says, God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm here. I'm just giving you what I have. And there's a big difference. And there was power in Jesus' parable because it wasn't the religious leader of the time who got it right. It was the person who knew he was the most sinful person and he had desperately needed a Savior. He desperately needed God's help. And Jesus ends the parable and says, the tax collector went home justified. But the Pharisee did not. Which camp would you fall into today? And as we close with this song, I want to invite you that if, if you're here today and you're going, man, I have missed the boat. 
I want to just invite you to come forward and you can sit in these chairs up here. You can kneel on the stairs and just pray. Fix your eyes on Christ and say, God, I want, I want to be who you've called me to be. And I have all this other stuff that seems to be getting in the way, but I want to be devoted to you. I recognize the gospel. I recognize the hope that is found only in Christ. And I want to pursue that. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. And if you're there today, come forward. We want to pray with you. Heavenly Father, this is a challenge for us because we like to do it ourselves. Lord, may we commit to not just hearing the truth of your word, hearing the gospel, but rooting into it. That it would have an impact on us day after day after day. Lord, we praise you so much for your grace, for salvation through Christ. Lord, that we have been reconciled, we've been justified. May we walk in that in Jesus' name.